All right, good morning. So great to see you guys today. Glad you're here in the room. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. And today is the start of a brand new series that we are calling uh, Regifting. I'm excited to share it with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Rick. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Autumn Ridge. And I've been thinking, as I get ready for this service, I can't remember if I've ever told you guys this story. Um, did I tell you guys a story about the time I was invited to a dinner with some really well-known pastors and Christian authors? I was at a pastor's conference at a big church out on the West Coast. A friend of mine from seminary uh, was on staff at that church. He pulled a few strings and got me in as a last-minute invite into this uh, small gathering. And uh, my friend said, listen, don't get your hopes up, uh, but Tim Keller might be at this dinner. Uh, too late, already excited. Hopes are up. Uh, so and if you don't know Tim Keller, he's just a well-known pastor. He's my favorite pastor. He's been a mentor at a distance for me through his preaching and through his writing. And I just went full fangirl. Um, I didn't have the right clothes for this event, so I went to the mall, um, got some new clothes, probably annoyed my wife, made her FaceTime with me. Just, you know, I'm in the store, make sure I get the right look. And you might say, Rick, you're being ridiculous, which you're right, I probably was. But it's a big deal for me. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. All right, so I rolled around. I get there awkwardly early for dinner, but fortunately my friend arrives shortly after me. It's time to sit down for dinner. Everyone's there. Tim Keller's a no-show. Doesn't show up. And uh, that's okay. I'm, try I'm doing my best to make the best of it. Uh, I mean, there's some great people at the table, some really great leaders. I'm, and uh, dinner, uh, dinner's wrapped up. It's time for dessert. Guess who shows up? Tim Keller. Sits two seats from me, Right? About that same time, two ladies from that church who had catered this lovely dinner, they came in and just kind of awkwardly let us know that they had, um, they had a flat tire. They were stuck in the driveway. Now, if you were there that night and you had to pick who looked like they didn't belong, you would pick me and my friend. We were just young guys, low-ranking guys in the room, and it was suggested that we go out and help these ladies. And so we did. And it's not super handy. It took a little while. By the time we got the tire changed and everything squared away, Dinner was over, everyone left. I lost my chance to talk to Tim Keller. Now, I want you to take all the things you might be feeling for me, hold them together, regardless of what comes next, hold them. You got them? Now, the story that I just told you is just a story. It did not happen, okay? <laughs> but, I want you, but I need you to hold on to those feelings, okay? Hold on, because they're gonna help you really connect with the story of something that did happen. One night, Jesus showed up at some friend's house. And this is what went down. As Jesus came and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. As she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, whether you are a man or a woman, I want you to identify with Mary, not Martha. I want you to pretend that you are Mary in this moment. You are sitting there, not with just someone who you admire. You are sitting with God in the flesh. And maybe you don't totally understand all that, but this is what you know. This is the man who does miracles. And when he teaches, he has an authority that no one has ever experienced before. And all you know is that when he is there and he's talking, you feel like God is with you and like God loves you. And out of everybody in the room, you're the one who's picked to get up and leave and go do some chores. 
What does that feel like? As you think about how you might respond to that, this is how Jesus responded. Martha, Martha, you're worried, you're upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. There are a lot of things, I think, here for us to unpack out of this brief encounter. But I want to start with this question. Why would Martha expect Mary to give up a chance to sit at Jesus' feet? Why do you think she would just expect it? For us to be able to answer this question, we first have to be able to make sure we understand the significance of this moment and exactly what this question is asking. The text says this, that Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet. It would be completely understandable for us to interpret that as descriptive, like maybe she's just sitting on the floor near Jesus. And this is descriptive to be sure, but if we just understood it as, well, she's near Jesus, it would be inaccurate. We'd be missing the point. This phrase right here, sat at the Lord's feet, it's an idiom. It is an expression. It, for sure, it is descriptive, but it's not describing location. This phrase is used to describe when someone is a disciple. Sitting at someone's feet means you're a disciple. It doesn't just mean she's included in the room. It means Mary is included as a disciple of this rabbi. Mary is included as a disciple of Jesus. It's not just describing location. It's talking about her relationship to the rabbi, to the teacher, Jesus. And we have phrases in our own language that do the same sort of thing. Think about phrases like, he has you under his thumb, or she's got you wrapped around her little finger. Are they descriptive? Yes. Are they describing your location? No. They're describing something about you and your relationship to the other person. You're under his control. You're under her influence. This phrase right here means she is a disciple of Jesus. Now, when Luke wrote this, I, I'm struggling. Maybe you can. I'm struggling. I don't know if I can just get there to truly understand the impact of Luke's words. This was radical. This is nothing short of revolutionary. This was culturally explosive. Women were not disciples. Now, that's not God's idea. You're not going to read that anywhere in Scripture, Old or New Testament. That is just something that had developed and formed in their culture. Only men could be disciples. It would be helpful for us to understand what it means to be a disciple. Disciple means pupil, learner, student, or follower. And disciples had expectations and privileges First off, if you were a disciple, that was an honor because that meant out of all the students, you were the best, you were at the top, and you were selected out of everyone else to be a disciple of this teacher, of this rabbi. And the more prestigious the rabbi was, the more prestigious it was to be a disciple of that rabbi. And if you were a disciple, you had the greatest access to and proximity to that teacher, to that rabbi. It was a position of privilege. And if you were a disciple, the goal wasn't just to pass a test one day or to win some sort of discipleship trivia contest. The expectation of disciples is that they would go on to lead and teach others in the way of that rabbi, in the way of that teacher. Remember, we've said this. Leadership is a destination of discipleship. 
If you're a disciple, you would become like that rabbi so when people were around you, they would experience what it's like to be around that teacher or that rabbi. And in first century Jewish culture, in first century Israel, just like many other, maybe all other cultures around the world at that time, they had calcified around, they had hardened themselves around the idea that status, value, and privilege were based on ethnicity, gender, and socioeconomic position. And when Jesus showed up, he just dropped a grenade on that way of being. It was disruptive for first century Jewish culture. Jesus was disruptive for Greco-Roman culture. Jesus continues to be disruptive for culture. I want to share with you a couple of prayers that were common during that day. And knowing these prayers, some of you probably already know about them, but knowing these prayers helps us unlock the mindset that was common in cultures that day. And when we understand and we know these prayers, I think it will cause the words in the New Testament to jump off the page. Here are two prayers. The first was introduced by Plato. I thank God that I was born Greek and not a barbarian, a free man and not a slave, a man and not a woman, but above all, I was born in the age of Socrates. It's a common, well-known prayer in Greco-Roman culture. Interestingly, there was a daily Jewish prayer that was said by Jewish men that is almost identical to this. This is that prayer. Blessed art thou, O God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Somebody like the Apostle Paul would have said this prayer daily prior to becoming a follower of Jesus. And that way of thinking unraveled for him as he was transformed by the good news of Jesus, by the gospel. And I want you to hold these two prayers in mind as we read a couple of things the Apostle Paul would go on to write. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is all. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul would write this, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you're a note taker, I'd love for you to write this down. Everything that it means to be a disciple is fully applied to everyone who follows Jesus. Everything that it means to be a disciple is fully applied to everyone who follows Jesus. So back to our question, why would Martha expect her sister to get up and leave, to get up and give up a chance to sit at the feet of Jesus? It's because everything about her upbringing, everything about her culture told her that her sister Mary was ignoring her gender role. Men should do what men do. Women should do what women do. But with Jesus, it's different. Everything that it means to be a disciple is fully applied to everyone who follows Jesus. No matter your ethnicity, no matter your gender, no matter your socioeconomic position, no matter your age, Everything that it means to be a disciple is fully applied to everyone who follows Jesus. And that's why Jesus turned to Martha and said this, not with harshness, not with anger, I believe with gentleness, but seriousness. Martha, Martha, come on. You're worried. 
You're upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary chose what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. Jesus said it for the benefit of Mary. He said it for the benefit of Martha. He said it for the benefit of everyone in the room. He said it for the benefit of all the people from then to now who would read about this account. There is a tension sometimes between doing for Jesus and being with Jesus. And the default setting of discipleship is to prioritize being with Jesus. Mary chose the better way. It's not going to be taken away from her. If we choose the better way, it's not going to be taken away from us. I don't ex- know how to explain why. I just know the experience of it. There is, And the tension between doing for Jesus and being with Jesus, doing for Jesus feels more urgent. But Jesus said, no, being with him is the superior way. That's what's more urgent. Do you believe that? So the question is this. Well, why would Mary, excuse me, why would Martha exchange sitting with Jesus for serving Jesus? Why would she give up the better way for herself? I think the the culturally defined gender roles were framing her thinking. I think culturally defined gender roles were uh, framing the story she told herself about herself. But the commentary of Luke and comments made by Jesus let us know that there's more going on beneath the surface Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody ever get distracted by all the stuff that has to be done? Some of us in the room, some of you guys can just relate to this better than others. Those of you who are gifted in hospitality, those of you who are managers and you're used to leading teams, those of you who are kind of get-it-done people, you instinctively know what's going on inside of Martha, what she's thinking, she's feeling. What are some of those things? She's probably thinking, what are people going to think about me if I don't get this done? What is she feeling? The weight and the pressure of expectation. She's probably thinking, people are going to think I'm a bad host. And if you know anything about that day and time, that part of the world, that culture, you know hospitality is huge. How you perform as a host is a source of honor or shame. There is a lot at stake for her and the story she's telling herself about herself. I wonder if anybody can relate to this one. I guess they all just expect me to do it. I guess everybody's just expecting me to get it done. Feelings of resentment are starting to emerge. And whether you can relate to Martha or not, there is some real biblical wisdom just sitting here for us. More things will demand your attention than deserve your attention. More things will demand your time than deserve your time. More things will demand your emotional energy than deserve your emotional energy. But I want us to think about it this way. More things will demand your devotion than deserve your devotion. This isn't pop psychology. This is not bumper sticker theology. This is the real deal stuff of life. This is the deep down stuff of the gospel. What commands your devotion? What is it that gets your devotion? I was walking through the mall and I saw this t-shirt, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> like you, I laughed. It didn't offend me, I laughed. But it gave me pause because I think this shirt right here, Jesus is coming, look busy, I think it perfectly summarizes a religious mindset. 
I think it perfectly summarizes the Christian life for followers of Jesus who don't totally understand the gospel. Here's a question we ask a lot around here. What is the story I'm telling myself about myself? This is an identity question. What's the story you're telling yourself about yourself? There's a lot of different ways we can go with this, but from a 30,000-foot view, there are two kind of major ways that we can go, and it's just really easy to go the wrong way. Two options we have. What I do determines who I am, or who I am determines what I do. And whatever the best way it is to describe the mix of emotions and thoughts that are churning up inside of Martha that are robbing her of the ability to simply sit down and be with Jesus, it's probably rooted, and this is her story, what I do determines who I am. I've got to get it all done so that I can look okay, so that I can feel okay, so that I can be okay. This way of thinking, what I do determines who I am, is a devastating impact of the reality of sin. And it is a backdrop against which the gospel shines brightly. There is no good reason for a follower of Jesus to ever think this way. What I do determines who I am. We are not defined by what we do, but by what he has done. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, but couldn't. He died the death that we should have died, paid the penalty that we should have paid but couldn't. And he rose from the dead, proving that he has the power to forgive and offer new life to all those who would trust in him. We weren't good enough. Jesus was good enough for us. We weren't acceptable. Jesus was acceptable for us and made us acceptable. We were unlovely in our sin, and Jesus, who is love, loved us sacrificially. The gospel is incredibly good news, but it's new, good news that starts with bad news. We're far more guilty and sinful and morally messed up than we could ever dare admit, and yet in Christ, by trusting in him, we are far more loved and forgiven and accepted and delighted in than we could ever dare hope. Jesus offers us a better story. And that's one of the many reasons that, that we just want to say today, he is worth our devotion. Now, this is what our church is about. We exist to lead people to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, in part because Jesus gives a better story. And this is, this is a key part of understanding the gospel. I find joy in defining myself by what Jesus did, not by what I do. Mary seemed like she got that. Martha seems like maybe she was slow on the uptake, struggling to understand. As I was getting ready for this message and this message series, I read a book called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's been a tremendous benefit to me. I think a lot of our pastors would say that it's been a benefit to them. We recommend it to you wholeheartedly. And if you read it, you're going to see that it's had a significant impact on this message series. The author of this book is a man named Peter Schizero. And I'm going to share with you something that he wrote that's continuing to resonate with me. He said this, an emotionally healthy disciple slows down to be with Jesus, goes beneath the surface of their life to be deeply transformed by Jesus, and offers their life as a gift to the world for Jesus. I want my life to be a gift. 
I bet many of you would say you want your life to be a gift. It would be the privilege of a lifetime for my life and for your life for us to live it in such a way that we are a gift to others that helps them discover and want to know the gift of Jesus. I just don't think it's going to happen until until we're able to slow down and be with Jesus and really get beneath the surface and be transformed by Jesus. That's how we become like him. That's how we become a gift to the world for him. And so I want to introduce to you what our series thesis is going to be. This is something you're going to hear each week. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. Each week, we're going to explore this further and further. We're going to, we're going to unpack it more and more. But today, let's start with this. People will experience me, and people will experience you before they experience Jesus. People will experience what we are like before they know and discover what Jesus is like. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. So here's the question. What kind of wrapping paper are we? You know, it's really easy, I mean just ridiculously easy, is to be locked in the mindset. Who, what I do determines who I am. What I do determines who I am. So I, have to, so I, I tend to be kind of image-driven. I've got to project, and, and I kind of wrap myself up and looking like I have it all together because I don't want to be exposed. Have you guys noticed this over here? Do you guys know how hard it is to wrap a package this big? Somebody had a really annoying job this week, but doesn't this look nice? This, is, this looks great. It looks like, what's in here? It's so incredibly easy for those of us who are followers of Jesus to present ourselves like this, like, hey, we're just nice and shiny and we got it all together. It's so easy. It's, we're just vulnerable to this to say the right things in the right way, to do the right things, to dress the right way. To do, I mean, just, I just got to show, I got to look like I have it all together. And we accidentally, and we unintentionally communicate, I've got it all together, and if you get it all together, you can be accepted by Jesus too. But your acceptability and your approval is not based on what you do. It's based on what he's done for you. My approval and my acceptability has nothing to do with what I do or don't do. It's everything. All of it is based on what Jesus has done. And the question is, do we trust in that? The reason we're talking about Martha today, we're focusing in on her. She was, she was on the struggle bus. She was struggling to really see and understand this. So let's ask this question. What could Martha have done differently? I mean, big, big deal. So the dinner preparations aren't done. Jesus is your dinner guest. All he has to do is miracle, voila, dinner's ready. It's great. But seriously, what should she have done? If I, could, if I had the power to transport you back in time, five minutes before uh, this went down, what kind of advice would you give to her? What should she do? She's got these anxious, frenetic feelings of feeling upset and worried and insecure and all of that. Worried she looks bad. What is she supposed to do? Should she just stuff it and sit there? Should she take those thoughts and feelings and just pretend like they're not there? Who's tried that? Anybody ever tried that? How does that work? 
Not awesome. I got a crazy idea today. You want to hear it? What if, what if Martha just walked up to Jesus and said, uh, I'm starting to feel annoyed. I feel like everybody wants me to get this done. I want to get it done. Jesus, what do you want me to do? What if, what if she just walked up and whispered to Jesus, I'm afraid of disappointing you. What do you want me to do? What do you think Jesus would have said? I think Jesus would have said, Martha, have a seat. It's okay. Those things are important. We'll get to it. I want you to sit down and be with me right now. This is the thing. This is the thing I really want you to take home today. This is the thing I want you to be chewing on. This is the thing I want you to try and put in practice this week. Just sit with Jesus first. Just sit with Jesus first. Now, are there stuff, is there stuff to be done? Is there a lot of stuff going on? Are there things we need to get to and do? Absolutely. Step number one, just sit with Jesus first. And it's not like step number one, we check it off. Okay, now what's step number two? It's not that. This becomes the default setting of a follower of Jesus, of a disciple. This is something that becomes a habit. This becomes part of the rhythm and regular and daily routine of someone who knows and loves and follows Jesus. Just sit with Jesus first. Now, I say that, and I get it. Some of you guys might feel like, that kind of sounds like pastor speak. It sounds a little bit like Christianese mumbo-jumbo. That's the kind of thing you expect to hear in church, but when we go and we, we're in our week, I don't really know what to do with that. Like, what do you want me to do? What does that mean? And so what I want to do is I want to try and model that for you right now. I want to give you a way that we can do this by sharing with you how I do this. Some of you might have heard me say this before. I absolutely mean it. I think I might be the most insecure person uh, that I know. And my insecurity isn't anybody else's fault. It's just something that lives inside of me. It's, I guess it's the reality of sin. It's part of living in a broken world, right? And so uh, I'm also a guy, I got some dad wounds. Um, and so uh, my insecurity grows on its own, but my dad wounds kind of throw some fertilizer on that. You know what I'm saying? And this is the way that it expresses itself in my life. There's something inside of me that hungers for your approval so that I can be okay. There's something inside of me that wants to be defensive and wants to posture and wants to prove that I'm smart enough and I'm good enough and define myself by what other people say about me. That's just, that's just the way that it works. Now, I wish I could tell you that following Jesus means that the insecurity monster magically goes away. Not true. But this is what it does mean. Being a follower of Jesus means that I'm not alone with it. It means that I could sit down, sit with Jesus. I could be honest. And in prayer and in reading his word, he speaks words of life and truth and goodness over me. And what I'm talking about is the kind of stuff that People who know God have known for a long, long time. This goes back to the Old Testament. 
Have you ever read the Old Testament book of Psalms? This is what I'm describing as half of the book of Psalms. Let me give you an outline of half of what you'll read in the book of Psalms. Dear God, I'm scared, I'm sad, and I'm jealous. But I'm going to choose to worship you. And I'm going to choose to focus on your truth, goodness, and beauty. Because when I see you, that's when I really see myself and I better see my circumstances when I first know and focus on you. And so this is why just sitting and being with Jesus looks like sometimes. It's not the only way, but it is a way. I can sit with Jesus and get ugly honest in prayer. Did you guys know that it's cool to be ugly honest in prayer? And just say, Jesus, I'm feeling really insecure right now. This is how I'm acting on it. These are the things that I'm telling myself. This is, I'm, I'm so vulnerable to define myself by what I do and what other people think instead of by what you have done for me. And then I read his word with urgency because I believe the promise that God's word has everything I need for the life that he has called me to, that his word has everything I need for a life of godliness. And so this is an excerpt from Romans 8 of things that I read in my own personal devotion this week, my own personal time of sitting with Jesus. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you know what that means that Jesus is interceding for us? It means he is praying for you. This week I was reminded of an old Scottish pastor who said, if I could hear him in the next room praying for me, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. If you could hear Jesus in the next room praying for you, what would you fear? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.